Well, welcome, church, to part two of our series that we're in right now called The Last Word. And the idea of this series is simply for us to uncover and discover what God is like by taking a look at his last words. You can take a look, as we heard last week, um, you can understand a lot about somebody by the last words that they speak. And for us, God has these different sayings, his last words that Jesus offered up on the cross. And it tells us a lot about what God is like. So for example, last week we kicked it off in part one by saying, by looking at the the phrase, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And this is Jesus telling us about what God is like, that God is a God who leads with grace and follows with truth. And today we take a look at at what God is like, and it's going to be a message about, about unity, a message about inclusion, a message about adoption, uh, but first, we're going to go down into the, into the valley here, and we're going to see that this is also a message about being abandoned, a message about loneliness, a message about isolation. So what I want to do is, is we're, we're going to go down into this valley, but by the end of it, I think that we're going to want to sing together. Uh, first, I just want to acknowledge together that, that nothing really quite has as much hurt, uh, nothing really stings as much as, as how rejection feels. And some of you have, have lived that. Some of you have know what that rejection is. It doesn't matter what age that takes place at. I mean, I talked to somebody that um, all, goes all the way back to his fifth grade basketball team. Uh, when he goes, I still remember, nobody on the team would pass the ball to me. Not for the entire season. Not one single passed ball. And, and you know what? The other team, they noticed, even as fifth graders, they, they figured it out pretty quick. And so the second half, I was never, I, I was never guarded. And even though I was never guarded, they, they that my team would still pass the ball to the guy who had two defenders on him. And nothing quite hurts like the sting of rejection. He goes, I carry that around with me. Even into, into an adulthood, talk to a friend group. In the same calendar year, all of the friends were turning 30 at the same time. Those of you who haven't turned 30 yet, it, like, it's a big deal, okay? Just, it's, it's like emotionally, you know, it's, there's a lot. It's not about me, though. This is a different friend group. And uh, they, they all turned 30 in the same calendar year. We're going to do it up. We're going to live it up this year, right? Party after party, celebration after celebration. We're going we're gonna to own this thing. As so the first guy, he gets a murder mystery-themed birthday party for him. Huge. The second guy, a little smaller, uh, pizza and paintball. That sounds terrible to me, but it's like about them. Uh, third guy goes, they do, a, they do an escape room downtown. Okay, awesome. Fourth guy, he goes, I still remember, I didn't even get a text saying happy birthday. Because by the fourth birthday came around, everybody was done with it, and they forgot about me. Nothing quite hurts like the sting of rejection. There's like a, there's a business group where the manager brings all the employees, all the, the whole staff, to this off-site kind of retreat deal. And they're doing this team-building exercise, which ironically was about self-awareness. And they do this exercise where the leader hands out eight leadership attributes to every single person in the room and says, give these away to the people on your team that you think, that you believe just exude these kind of attributes. And a guy goes, 30 of my coworkers in the room, eight cards to pass out. You do the math. He goes, I didn't get a single one of them. Nothing quite hurts like the sting of rejection. And some of you get that. Some of you are here 
and you've done one of those like late at night kind of Hail Mary sort of prayers, where whatever reason was going on in your life, you just laid back at night, just staring at the ceiling and saying, God, I need you just to show up. I don't even need an answer. I don't need you to solve this thing in my life. I just need to know that my prayers are making it past the drywall on the ceiling. So give me just some kind of a sign that you heard what I'm saying. And the answer that you got is silence. Nothing at all. And church, it makes you wonder, if there's a God out there, he doesn't care about me. If there's a God out there, he has rejected me. If there's a God out there, he obviously has abandoned me. And if you've ever prayed that kind of Hail Mary prayer, or you've ever thought about that kind of God, I would like to teach you a word this morning. There's a biblical word for it. And and it's not loneliness. And it's not sadness. And it's not even depression, but like those are seeds. It's what loneliness, it's what sadness, it's what depression, it's what all of these things grow up into. It's this word right here. It's forsaken. That God, you have forsaken me. I am all alone in this. And I don't know if you can hear me and I don't even know if you're real. And if you are, well, that almost makes it worse. And so if you've done one of those Hail Mary prayers in the past, if you've known the sting of rejection, I want you to know this morning that at least you aren't alone in that forsakenness. Now you have a God, Jesus, who his last words, some of his last words, were acknowledging that forsakenness, that 2,000 years ago Jesus lived and he taught us how to live. And he did miracles and he did healings, and he fed the, he fed the hungry, and, and, he, and he gave sight to the blind. He did so much, and then he was arrested. And then he was sentenced. And then he was crucified. And while they put the nails in his hands and his feet, when they put him up on the cross, he shared these words from Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to kick it off in verse 45. Where Matthew, the eyewitness to this, says that from noon... Until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Literally, he screamed these words. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's our word. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries those words out. And I just want us to acknowledge, I guess, for like a minute, that any one of you who have like prayed that kind of Hail Mary prayer that you have a God who also prayed, that you have a God, Jesus, who also lied awake on the cross that time, and he cried out, God, I just need to know that you hear me. And you also have a God who was met with the same response that you've been met with, which was nothing. There was no answer whatsoever. Nothing. Matthew says, that Jesus was up there for about six hours from nine until three. And it was halfway through, the the three-hour mark, that darkness came over. I don't know if this is like an eclipse kind of thing. It was a supernatural thing. I don't think it needs to be. I think it just gets dark. It's just God's way of saying, what's about to happen here? Tread lightly. What's about to happen here? I'm not even sure if I want you to see it. Just take notice. 
But if you, were, if you were to be brave and courageous, if you were to pick it up, if you were to take this event that's happening here, Christ crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you'd hold it in your hand, and if you'd let the, the weight of it just sit for a moment, and if you just examine it on either side, what you would find about this event, what you would find about what's happening here is that God is so remarkably holy. What we're going to see is that God is holy. What we're going to see is sin is ugly. What we're going to see today is that salvation is costly. My goodness, does it have a cost to it. Remember those words, though. Jesus, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that, that your own feeling in, that, in the sting of abandonment and isolation. Remember that there's nothing that hurts quite like the sting of rejection. Of being left all alone. Uh, physio- phys- physically? Physiology? But, you know, medical stuff. Um, like this is a real thing. Uh, broken heart syndrome. I looked into it this week. It's wild. Uh, Researchers found out it's a, it's, a, it's a real thing. Brenda uh, and her uh, husband, um, the Jordans, uh, older couple, 50 years of marriage, which is just kind of awesome in its own way. Uh, she was first uh, to pass on. And then he follows like a day later or so. And it's, it's wild, totally unrelated unrelated causes. Some of you have, who have known that this sort of thing happens. Broken heart syndrome, uh, made more famous by the Cash family. June Carter Cash dies in a car accident. And then Johnny Cash, her husband, uh, dies a few months later. Totally unrelated causes, a, a broken heart. Uh, doctors call it uh, stress cardiomyopathy, something like that. Uh, essentially, like, because of the loss because of, of being with somebody for such a long period of time and then waking up one morning and, and not having them around and the weight of realizing that they're never actually going to be around again weighs so heavily on one's heart and stresses them out in such a way that it actually stops. Stress cardiomyopathy, it's a broken, broken heart syndrome. This is a couple that's been together for 50 years. I, I want you just to imagine Jesus on the cross crying out these words. He has been with his heavenly father for not 50 years, for 50 million years. He has been with his heavenly father since the beginning of time. And every time he has called out for his father, he has answered for an infinite number of times. Until now. You know, it's interesting. I never realized this, this before. Uh, this week, I, I was today years old when I found this out. Uh, Jesus, every time he addresses his father in the Gospels, every time he addresses God, he calls him father. He even, he even invites us to pray that same way. Our father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Every time Jesus addresses God in the Gospels, he calls him his father, this relational term except for once. Because right now he doesn't cry out, my father, my father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there has been this relational severance that has taken place. Why? First thing, because God is holy. God is so 
remarkably holy that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around why this separation. The, the Greeks, the Romans, the pantheon, they had all kinds of gods. They had God for everything, and they honored those gods, put up statues and monuments, a pantheon. They tell stories about their gods. And the thing about their gods, the people in Jesus' day, the thing about those gods is that those gods were not a lot unlike us, that they were, that they were complete with human frailties, uh, that they were jealous and that they were moody and that they were impatient and that they were unkind, that they were imperfect beings, kind of a lot like us. But what separates the, the Jewish idea of God and honestly our Christian idea of God isn't that he's moody or jealous or impatient or unkind or imperfect. It's that he's, he's the antithesis of all of those things. He is so perfect. In fact, he's so perfect, he says that he doesn't even look on sin, which is such a comforting thought when we think about our, our destination. Like we're on this trajectory and we're heading towards heaven and we want to know what that's like. To know that God is a God who will not put up with it. He's not going to look at sin and in his dwelling place before his throne, he won't tolerate it. And so there'll be no sin and there'll be no brokenness and there'll be no fallout from all the sin that's around it's so hopeful, but we can see. We can see that God is holy. And it's what, it's what kept Jesus on the cross. It, taking on and carrying on the guilt of, of each one of us. And, and so let, let's play the least fun game you're going to play today, probably. Think about the thing that you've done in your life that you are most guilty about. And some of you Calvinists, like, that came super quick. Congratulations, you've been beating yourself up for that for a while. It's good to say it to yourself out loud in your head. Uh, that, that thing, right? And, and you carry that around, and it, it, it gnaws at you, doesn't it? Like, it gets to you. It, it kind of has a way of infecting and, and, and tweaking, like, every other part of your life that might not even be related to it right now. It's, like, it's poisoned by it. And the guilt, it just, it weighs like a blanket around you. Everywhere you go, every interaction, it's just, it's, it's there. And think about Jesus taking on that thing. And 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 that thing. Think about the, think about what it was like for Jesus to take on the guilt, not just of one person, of himself, let's say, but, but the guilt of everybody. Think, think about Jesus taking the, the weighted blanket kind of guilt of every single act of abuse, the guilt of every single kind of neglect, of every single rage, of every single unkind word, of every single murder, of every single atrocity. And Jesus is taking on this guilt on his shoulders. It's hanging on him as he hangs for the world. And God, for his sake, Jesus may have, may have recalled the words of Exodus 20. When Moses got the Ten Commandments down on the mountain, God tells Moses, he says, I will clear no one of their sins. I will not look past it. And Jesus is saying, and you're not looking past this either. You're not letting me get off with this either. God is holy. That's why Jesus calls out, cries out for that first time. Why have you forsaken me, God? And he gets the same answer we do. Nothing. 
Why does he crawl out, cry out? And number one, God is holy. Number two, number two, sin is ugly, guys. Sin is ugly. Sin is ugly, but we we don't think it's we don't think it's all that ugly. We think that sin is fun. In fact, if you don't think that sin is fun, you're probably doing it wrong. Sin, sin we don't think is, that was a joke. Don't write that down. For the record, we don't think it's so much ugly. We think it's fun. We think it's funny. I'm just throwing it out, this out there. It's possible that the basic plot line of nearly every sitcom on TV today is, is grounded in sin. Like, I just started paying attention. I kind of, like, started thinking back to the plot lines. At some way, at somewhere, somebody usually, like, tells a lie or tries to get out of something with an untruth, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's sin. And then it, it, like, blows up. You know, it gets bigger. And then more lies have to be poured on to cover that lie. And it's, it's, it's funny. And by the end, we're laughing, and there's some kind of resolution. And you never really see what happens after that. Because it's like a 23-minute episode, and then it's done. You go on to the next show. You start the whole thing over again. You know, I wonder if, the, if one of the devil's biggest successes in this world is getting us to think that what held Jesus to the cross is funny. And it's funny as long as we don't see the consequences, isn't it? It's funny to see the ridiculous relationship mishaps that fall out from somebody sleeping around when you never have to look at the wake of broken relationships and and devastating relationships that that you've left behind. It's fun as long as you don't have to see the consequences. It's fun uh, to see people and and to think about parties. And it's fun to go out drinking with friends just as long as you don't have to, like, notice or, or look too hard at the DUI that comes after that, or worse, the accident, maybe even the loss of life that comes with that. I mean, it's funny as long as you don't see, like, the consequences, because once you start seeing the consequences, well, then it's not funny anymore. Then the joke is up. Then, it, then it's ugly, isn't it? Then it gets, it gets real ugly. God is holy. Sin is ugly. Because it wrecks relationships. It wrecks every relationship. Anytime you inject conflict into any relationship, it makes it worse. It makes it strained and harder. Any kind of relationship. Uh, friend group, you know, somebody says something, make, makes a joke, pokes fun at somebody else. There's conflict in the relationship. It just, everything gets strained, right? If you're in the Midwest, you know, and there's like one last French fry, and you're like, no, 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 you can have it. No, no, you can have it. And somebody's like, okay, I'm going to eat it. And you're like, whoa, that's not how we do it here, right? we got to go back and forth like 100 times. Now, I'm going to act passively aggressive toward you probably for the rest of your life. The relationship is, is strained. Conflict is injected into it. Some of you have who've got roommates. You're living with somebody in a house, renting an apartment, something like that. When somebody doesn't do their, like, chore wheel thing, and you're like, hey, you didn't, you didn't do your chore. That means you got to put a dollar in the jar. And they're like, I put a dollar in the jar. You didn't, you didn't put a dollar in the jar. There's conflict there. I'm telling you, like, the air in the house tastes differently when there's conflict going on. Like, you can tell. Marriages? This, this is what I learned about in the pandemic, when I'm working from home. This is what I figured out. I can tell 
that my wife is upset at me by the sound of her footsteps upstairs. That was a little new to me because usually I would tell with how she shut the, the cabinets, right? I, I can tell. And you know what? She can tell that I'm upset with her from something that I can do. I don't even know what that is, but I know that she can tell because anytime you inject conflict into a relationship, it's strength. And I'm telling you, it doesn't just happen horizontally. It happens vertically too. Anytime you inject conflict into this relationship, it strains this relationship. And that's what sin does. That's how it gets there. We, we, have, we have a lot of problems. I have a lot of problems. You have a lot of problems. A lot of really big problems. But you know what? Financially, that's not your biggest problem. That's a big problem. That's not your biggest problem. Getting the job or finding a new job or liking the job that you're in, that's, that's a, it's a big problem. That's not our biggest problem. This relationship, uh, strained relationship, figuring it out, you know, effective communication, love languages, that's a big problem. Uh, finding a new relationship, right, when the old one, you know, didn't work out, that's a big problem. Um, being content and satisfied by yourself before you find your identity in somebody else, like that, that's an issue. That's a problem. That's not our biggest problem. Uh, physically, how you, how you look whether you wish you were taller or shorter or wider or skinnier, that, that's a problem. That's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we, are, we live, biblically, as enemies to God. Our biggest problem is that we're in conflict with God, that every morning, church, I get up and I open, I can read what God expects of me that day, what God hopes of me that day. Every day I have an opportunity to live according to, to the rhythms of the God who made me. And every day I choose not to do that, which means I am essentially telling God back, I think I would be a better God than you are. And conflict is injected into that relationship. And if you don't think it's ugly, that I think I can do a better job being God than he does. We've missed it. You guys, God, so holy, sin is so ugly, and salvation is such a cost to it. This is, um, this is not grounded in science at all. I just want to get that out there, it's not a Gallup poll kind of thing. I found no supporting evidence for this statement whatsoever, which is, I know what everybody's hoping for out of their pastor this morning. Uh, I think the number one religion in America is you-do-you religion. I don't think it registers on the Gallup thing, because that's, last time I checked, not one of the boxes that you could fill in. But like religion in America, Christianity, whatever religion it is, when people check that, most of the time, I would say that what they would actually mean by that is, hey, you do you, you follow your heart. Like, it, like as, lo as long as you're doing what comes most naturally to you, as long as you're following through on, on those instincts, like, that's good. You're good. Just keep on doing that. And can you imagine what it would mean? That, can you imagine that conversation with Jesus on the cross a couple thousand years ago? When you're trying to explain to him, hey man, we can all go to heaven just as long as we kind of follow wherever 
our hearts are leading us. You can imagine Jesus' response, like, what in the world am I doing up here then? (laughs) Salvation has a cost. In the church world, we call that cost atonement. It's It's a $10 word, I know. We don't use that very much. Atonement, it just... It just means paying for the damage that you've done, paying for the wrongs that you've done. And none of us, none of us want to live in a world where somebody can inflict a wrong or inflict damage and then not have to pay for it. Like that world works out great right up until like I'm the one or you're the one who receives the wrong and you're like, is nobody going to make this thing right? And God says, I don't want you to live in that world either. And that's not how I made the world. No, there's, there's mercy, but there's also justice attached to it. There's justice and mercy. The wrongs will be made right again. That's salvation. It has a cost to pay. That salvation is probably the most expensive gift that you will ever receive. It's free to you because it's paid for by somebody else. But salvation is the most expensive gift you will ever receive. There's mercy, there's also justice. It's, it's, it puts so perfectly well in the story of these two study buddies who found each other in law school in, uh, in the state of New York. And they, they got together and they like struggled through all of law school together. They did pretty well. They finished. They passed their bar exam. Congratulations. They get to move on. They get to do something, something better than law school. And so immediately though, they're their paths start to diverge. The one guy takes like the high road, you know, and goes to civil service and he eventually becomes a humble judge. The second guy got like caught up in the trappings of city life in New York City. I mean, he goes, he makes some money, he spends more than he makes. He gets caught up in a lifestyle, he gets caught up in some drugs, he gets caught up, wrong crowd, the whole thing. He's disbarred, he's arrested, he's brought, he's brought before the judge. And in this, this situation, uh, there were some other people in the gallery, like, like recognizing these two guys, they know each other. Like they go way back, they have lost touch, but now they're together again. And everybody's kind of wondering, how's the judge gonna treat his former study buddy, his former best friend? And what the judge does is he looks at his former study buddy and best friend. He looks at him and he levies the harshest fine upon him that the state of New York would allow. Declaring to everybody that there is a cost to be paid. And then after the trial, the judge sets his gavel down and takes his robe off. And he gives his former best friend a big hug. And he pays the fine. There is justice. But there is also mercy. And that's how it works. That's how it works. Jonathan Edwards was a well-known Puritan minister in the late 1600s. He was also the grandfather of Aaron Burr, some of you Hamilton fans doesn't matter. Um, He had a famous saying that he offered up one time, the only thing that I have offered for my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Back to the courtroom scene that God is the judge, God is the advocate, God is the attorney, God is the bailiff, and God is the bail bondsman. God does everything. It's his story, not mine. Thank God for it. He is holy. Sin is ugly. 
And salvation cost him everything. It was my sin and yours that held him there. Church, so where do we go from here? Recognizing that, where do we go? I got a few things. A few things. Number one, we turn our lives over to him. And we say, it cost you everything, Jesus. Take this on. Take my guilt too. Make that true, that story true for me in my life. Offer me your forgiveness. I accept your goodness and your love. Jesus, you're in charge of my life here, no longer me. First thing, turn your life over to his. Second thing is, like I said before, we sing. When we think about what this means, that God is holy, sin is ugly, and salvation is costly, but he paid it, it makes us sing, and we will sing in just a minute. We live a life of gratitude for what he has done. The third thing, when sin confronts us, we recognize what it cost Jesus to pay for it, and it makes us look and differently. Once we recognize what it costs Jesus to do away with it, I think it's gonna make us avoid it that much more. And the last thing, and for us at Encounter, guys, this is, this is huge. The last thing is that we tell people what God did. Because there is a whole city of people sitting on a couch right now who don't recognize what kind of God God is. They, they still think that God is a kind of God that if he is real, he's abandoned. If he is real, he forgot about them. If he is real, he has cast us off, and he's not. He paid the cost. He gave his life. It's the kind of God. Tell someone about that amazing. That's why we do everything around here. That's why we started a new church in Fulton Heights coming up this fall, Encounter Fulton Heights. It's everything because we have 2,791 people who need to know what God is like. And we're going to get out there, and we're going to tell everybody that this is what God is like. That our God is a God who is humiliated so that we could be liberated. Our God is a God who is left alone so we could be lifted up. Our God is a kind of God who was, who was abandoned so that we could be adopted. That our God is a God who was forsaken so that you and I, we could be forgiven. It's who he is. And it makes us sing today. You might be in the pit. You might be on the mountain. Right now, those of you in the pit wanting to sing, I want to give you some words because you, you need a new lyric. These are words from Psalm 13. The psalmist David, he sings the song, How Long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? But, but I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice, I will sing and rejoice at your salvation for you have been good to me. He has been good to you. And he is with you. You are not alone. He is holy. Sin is ugly. And Jesus has paid the cost of salvation. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's rejoice. But first, let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for what you're up to today. God, you're bringing salvation. God, you're bringing hope. God, you're telling us that we're not alone, that we're not abandoned.
God, you're telling us that no pain is going to be wasted and that our prayers are not going to go unanswered, God. We might feel forsaken, Jesus. You were forsaken so that we would never be forsaken ever. You hear us. You're asking us to wait. In the waiting, in the middle, may we sing, I'm not forsaken or abandoned. You're here. You're with me. Amen.